Welcome to Withness. I'm Keaton. And I'm Laura. I think we should start today with things we things we don't know. Calculus. <laughs> you know what? My brain used to know calculus. That's amazing. Yeah. Mine never did. <laughs> I, I sometimes like marvel at the, like I had to take it for an AP class and I got whatever score you needed to pass it. Whoa. But if I looked up like, I think I tried to look up the word derivative because that's like a basic calculus thing and I couldn't understand the definition. I was like, wherever that used to be in my brain, it is not there Your anymore. brain used to know, it used to hear derivative and do something with that yeah. information. Yeah. yeah. Calculus is the only class in my life that I've ever dropped. Yeah. <laughs> Other Anyhow, than calculus. It's lost. What, what, don't, what don't we know? <laughs> well, I thought we could start with, because we're going to get into just what we've kind of learned through this first season. And then we're going to have a conversation that Ben and I had about how to do funerals. So a lot of this first season has been about uh, specifically about being with each other through death and grief. And I thought we might at least just start with moments where we have felt like we didn't know what to do. Uh, can you think of any moment like that where you? So I remember a time when I was in high school and it, I still think about it all the time. We had tragically lost one of our classmates and I was walking in the hall and I was walking with his best friend. And I just remember trying to be kind of lighthearted and bring some levity to it about a week after all the tragedy had happened. And I was just like, Hey, like, how, how's it going? How are you? How are you? I just remember him lo looking at me and saying, I'm, I'm not good. And I, I didn't know what to do with that information. So I just sort of, I did something stupid. I think I giggled or something and went to class. And I just hate that in that, in that moment, I wasn't able to do anything for him. And I just felt like I, I completely dropped the ball on what, what he needed. And I just imagined that he probably wasn't getting what he needed anywhere. Yeah. I think it's hard, especially when you're young. I, when I moved back to Columbus, I was able to kind of rebuild some friendships from when uh, we were, I was growing up with people around here. And one of those friends, her dad died when we were freshmen in high school. And I feel like every time I see her, I end up trying to apologize <laughs> for the fact that, you know, when her dad died, we just, none of us knew what to do. Like now that I know what I know about losing people and I look backwards, I think, oh, I, she was probably dealing with this, this giant shift and also trying to go to like English class, you know, and we just, none of us had the tools to know how to to be there for her. And honestly, she didn't know what she needed or what she wanted in those days. And so for your friends to even be able to say, I'm not doing well, is actually, that's pretty good for a young person going through loss. Um, and so I think we have to, the sooner we can know how to be there for each other, the better, but we also have to find a way to, to forgive ourselves <laughs> for those years when we're, when we're young, especially, um, I, I just had one recently where sometimes it's, I actually find it harder when it's those friendships where they're kind of tangential friendships, where they're not your everyday people. Mm -hmm. um, I just had a friend who I had grown up with her in church and she was still in the Columbus area, but I hadn't seen her probably, you know, in a few years and she passed away pretty suddenly and I just remember thinking, like, how do I how do I honor that friendship that we had? Because I we weren't in enough regular touch that I felt 
like I had the right to be in the mix of it with her family, but I also, I didn't feel so distant from it that I felt like I could just pretend it didn't happen. You know, right. so it, was, trying- it was a loss, but it wasn't something from your everyday. Right. And so I think those are actually, that, that space is a weird one to figure out what's the right way to say this person was alive and it mattered to me, or how do you communicate that to family? Um, that's one of the things I loved about, I think in Faraha's episode, she was talking about her son's friends, like telling her stories or sending pictures. I do think that's one thing we can do for people at any age. Yep. Continue to keep their story going through adding new pieces to it. Yeah. Cause when, when the family is losing somebody, they're, they're craving any notion of that person in the world. And so I do think that's one thing universally we can maybe learn from this season. And it's, it's something I'm going to try to be more aware of. Um, especially when it is those like middle distance friendships where you have the pain or the loss. Um, anything else? Like I, th- I think it'd be good for us to just kind of reflect back on what we heard for those moments. Cause we all have them when we're not quite sure what our role is or what the best thing to do is. So I thought we could just have some conversation pulling out some of the things that we learned through these conversations this season. Yeah, absolutely. Something that I feel like what happened time and time again for ways that people were experiencing wetness in a way that was fulfilling was um, when there when there was specificity involved, like acknowledgement of the relationship and like specific music that might be important to each other or food that was important to each other, just like showing your unique understanding of who that person is and making them feel seen in that way. Yeah, it's it's such a it's such a silly thing, but taking care of people's very basic needs. Mm-hmm. And obviously food is like where we go a lot. That's why Ben's family ended up with all those meat and cheese trays. Um, but I, you know, I had friends give send me gas cards, <laughs> you know, like making sure people's travel is figured out. Uh, making sure that the logistics are taken care of in a way that shows you understand their needs. Something that I've learned, I've had some friends undergo some pretty traumatic events in recent history. And I, listening to that advice, I've sent them like a little, like an Amazon card or a gift card to get a coffee or something just to let them know that I'm thinking of them. But I can't help but feel like it's falling flat, like obviously, because you can't take care of them all of the way. And I'm like, but here's a latte. <laughs> yeah. So how, what, what would you say to me feeling like my feelings of worry that it's going to feel like I'm underselling the grief that they are experiencing? Yeah, I, I understand that feeling. I also just think anything we do to make withness tangible is a good move. And so I, I was thinking, you know, I don't know how much we want to spend energy on this conversation, but I was even thinking about the difference between when my parents lost uh, Chris and Leanne, the baby they had, they got all these cards and those cards lived in our home for years because they were tangible. And I was thinking how I only got a handful of cards when both my parents died, but I got a lot of Facebook likes. Mm-hmm. or a lot of care emojis. There are people who that is exactly the right thing for them to have done. Like that's as, you know, that's as deep as our friendship might have been. And that obviously seeing those did bring support and warmth through those days. 
but it wasn't the same as like I had friends Venmo me enough for a six pack or for a coffee or Venmo me something. And even that was just more tangible. It showed a little more thought. Um, I do think it's also true. Like finding words to send people is important too. So if it was the coffee plus a story, Mm. Or if it was a coffee plus a good quote you've heard that just reflects that you, you know, I think about how often we say, I'm thinking of you or praying for you, but what specificity can you add to that? Um, I, I tell people a lot, I'm, I'm cussing with you, right now, <laughs> you know, just sure. what can I add that shows I understand this feeling or when people are waiting on something, I say, I'm hoping with you through this, just something that's a little more specific um, helps you kind of communicate that you understand a little piece of what they're, what they're going through. But yeah, I don't, I don't think it's wrong to send a coffee. I, I, I remember those things just as much as I remember the thoughts and the prayers. Yeah. The, the social media component of the grieving process is really fascinating too, because the thing that that has that the cards, the cards and the Venmos, it's very one-on-one in an intimate way. But it is interesting that we have this new community space for grief. So it's just interesting to think of how that operates differently than the other ways that we tend to be with each other. Yeah. And maybe it's just a, maybe we're just in a moment of transition. Cause I do also go back and look at those posts and I do go back and like retroactively <laughs> absorb some of that, that people wrote. Um, so it, it is like the box in the closet in that way, but it didn't, it didn't cost people as much to do that. There was something about there's something about the thought of people going out and getting a card mm-hmm. and signing it that costs them a little bit more, I guess. And not that it costs $4 to buy a card, <laughs> but but that they, I don't know, that they, they took actually, an action. They moved towards, yeah. There was, this is just a funny story, but somebody, my dad worked for the post office for 50 some years. And so there was somebody who sent us a card and they didn't put an address on it. They just sent it to the Buffington family and it got to our house. Oh my (laughs) goodness. But they just knew my dad and And knew that somebody would know. (laughs) Yeah. And it found it, found its way to our little yellow house. So, um, I was thinking of one of the things I am trying to get, it's like always been a thought to me, but it really came to life talking to specifically Sarah and Leslie, um, how dangerous small talk is, mm-hmm. which I, I've always thought, but I feel like it became very real to me that they both talk about how something that you might take for granted is a safe, good, life-giving question. Just asking somebody how many kids they have is actually a really tender question. And so what would it look like if we walked around a little more aware of, of how dangerous small talk can be. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, it makes sense. It's also tricky because you still want to feel connected to people without walking on eggshells, but you also want to make sure that when somebody responds in a tender way to something yeah. that you didn't anticipate being tender, that you're there to catch that. Yeah. Well, and I think some of that is personality stuff too, because maybe I'm just like always ready for sad stories. <laughs> like I'm just always ready for the dark turn. But a lot of people, we ask those questions kind of innocently, you know, I, I don't think I ever realized before my sister died how often people just casually ask, how many siblings do you have? And I've had to 
like prepare myself in advance for how I'm going to answer that question. Mm-hmm. Um, and so maybe just being aware that pain is real and that not everybody's life looks exactly like ours is, is something we could take away from listening in. I was also thinking about when it comes to like language and the stories we tell, you know, thinking about our friend Joyce's last conversation and how important it becomes to speak the language of your friends. So for her, faith language was very helpful. Sure. You know, and so having the hope of heaven, having the hope that the things you did are meaningful in the kingdom of God kind of a way that was really meaningful to her. But maybe somebody else, that kind of language would not be comforting to them. Mm, yes. You know, so, you're saying. so yeah. when you're talking about like giving away a coffee card, that's to people who love coffee. <laughs> yeah. But you can't just, yeah. So that's not a making gift. that a one size fits all. Yeah. For everybody. It, what is the specific thing that your friend might need? Do they love music? Do they love flowers? Do they love, I, don't, I mean, you know, your friend. <laughs> yeah. And so thinking about that, not just in terms of what we offer, but also in the way we talk, mm-hmm. you know, that I know, I know to some degree, my friends who want hope emphasized all the time, who are like bright side people who are okay with the, those kind of words about it'll work out and it's okay it's all good and that can be really triggering for other people yeah I don't know how that would sit with me if somebody used that like not that I don't like hope but sometimes you don't you don't believe in it at the moment and yeah it can be hard to hear yeah you want somebody to be hopeless with you for a few minutes um so it may, may make sense to ask a question, but, you know, being aware, as I think we've talked about in some of the episodes, sometimes asking a question is giving homework to people. Just just knowing the kind of language we speak, I think, is a, is a big deal. And again, going back to our last episode with Blum, sometimes that stuff you figure out before the bad things happen, that you, you get to know each other in a way that you know what they would need in a, in a crisis or a moment of pain. And, and then universally, what is almost always true is to let people tell their story. Um, I wonder when you're walking down the hall, you know, is there something you could have asked that would be a question that would let your friend tell a story? Mm-hmm. Like, is there something, is there a story you keep thinking about with this person? Or is there something you're really going to miss about this person? Again, not so generic that they have to come up with what you're looking for, but something specific. Maybe specific is just the key to everything. Yeah. But I, I think letting people tell their stories is a, is a pretty big, pretty big deal. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. And thinking back to how I have some regrets about how I handled that conversation. I'm wondering if a lot of our listeners are reflecting on times where they didn't show up. And I'm just thinking through like what, and I know that in your experience there, that was something that was a challenge as something that happened, like people didn't show up. And that was obviously really hard. What would you say to folks who are listening to this and feeling a lot of shame for the way that they might've reacted when something when when shit hit the fan yeah I think we all have we all have those so I have been the person who dropped the ball to other people right and I think we were talking off mic about how it's not even just in grief but we just we feel like we fail at friendship 
in a lot of different ways. And then what happens is that shame takes over the story. And once shame is in the picture, it's really hard to repair. And what I have said about those folks who, you know, and it all goes down to like how serious was, was the friendship to start with. So there are some friends who the most appropriate thing they could have done was to give me the care emoji on a Facebook post, right? Like that was the right thing. But there were people where the friendship was deeper and where I thought they might be able to offer me something more. And with those people, I have said in my, to myself and other people, like all it would take would be, you know, I'm sorry to like erase that shame. You know, all it would take would be, I wasn't able and I wish I was. Um, but I think one of the things we, we all are tempted to do, whether it's because of pain or just because of a moment of failure is to like, let shame run the story. And there've been studies on this that like people live with that for years. Oh yeah. Uh, that just that moment where you didn't make the call or you didn't go to the service or you, you didn't take that step towards somebody can haunt you for years. And so I, I would certainly hope that that shame wouldn't win the day in any of those stories, you know? I honestly I am having trouble thinking of something that prevent like keeps you from witness more than shame. Yeah. Yeah, because it I mean you think about it even just when when it used to be like phone calls, when that was how you connected to people. Mm -hmm. It was always that thing where if you just let too long go, then shame comes in and is the boss of the party. And all of a sudden you can't do that simple thing. Mm-hmm. We're like just one step towards another person would erase that quickly. It's like a, I wish I had a more poetic metaphor, but it's like how cockroaches scatter mm. <laughs> when you open the door, like any little bit of light and they, they leave. And I think shame is that same way that all it takes is a, a little bit of like just opening the door a little bit. Letting the light in. I think that's a poetic metaphor. All right, we'll go with it. <laughs> so it passes. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, I was just thinking about how, you know, I think what we heard over and over again is affirmation of the basic idea that withness really does matter. And I was even thinking back to that that first episode where I talked about, you know, we had that masked, it's hard to say the word masked. Masked. Masked funeral for my dad and what I think about is I absolutely wish I had had like a guest book so that people could write their names down. I would know who was there, but what absolutely still mattered was seeing people. Mm -hmm. Even when I couldn't see their face or tell you their name, knowing that other people cared that my dad was gone in the world mattered so much. And even looking back, when I think about that day, I literally just see like a, like a crowd of like a faceless crowd of people. And it's, it's partially painful and partially helpful, <laughs> you know? And so it's just to say, let's say your, your Venmo to the person or your card to the person gets lost in the shuffle of the, those chaos days. It's still presence that matters. It's still, let's say you say the wrong thing, you know, it's still stumbling right through. Yeah. It is still showing up and I, I hope we will all be a little less fearful because of just because of this project and maybe listening in. Maybe we've given people room to listen in as a third party <laughs> so that when it comes closer to their life, they can show up for their people. Uh, we're going to talk to our friend Ben um, 
for one more conversation about not just showing up, but like how to tell people's stories. So he and I had a conversation about not just showing up, but what do you do when you are the one offering the funeral or the eulogy or how to serve families? And this is actually becoming a whole thing where people are more prone to asking a friend to help them than a professional spiritual person. And so it might be a thing, those of you who are listening, that you get asked to be a part of this. Um, or it might be a thing that you want to send a little bit more than a casserole. Maybe you're not invited to do the eulogy, but maybe you could sit down and write a story or help people tell the story of their person. So we wanted to offer just a little bit of insight into that process. So here's Ben and I talking about professional witness. You've done some funerals, right? I've I've done some of them. Um, I find there's nothing quite like being at a funeral and you feel like your words are doing work in the room. That you're, you're releasing laughter if they need to laugh. You're releasing tears if they need to cry. That you're telling their stories for them that you're, you're trying to get them to a place of hope. Um, that's my experience. It's just there's nothing quite like that moment. You can see it on people's faces that they're going through a process in that moment. Uh, have you seen that? Yeah, for sure. They're on edge with what the communicator's going to do or t- where they're going to go. And so like to pastor well in that space, to like soften that edge and then like give them permission uh, to go with you uh, both to the places of of levity, but also the places of like just ache and uh, just lament and grief to, to have the ability to read the room and take it where it needs to go. I, that is like an art. And I, I I have an appreciation for words. I I love words. That's my mom beating me up in Scrabble when I was a kid. Uh, like she just had a, an affinity for words too. But like you are way more gifted at, at just being able to take words to take people places. So how do you kind of go in that space and and make it like how are you using words to take people there? Yeah, I think that comes from. I, cause I just really care about them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like it comes from me as a kid, like keeping company with words and stories and needing to find the right ones uh, a lot of times. And I am the most skeptical listener I know. And so sometimes it's just putting it through the filter of my own doubt and skepticism. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, it the BS test, right? Like, <laughs> yes. is does this hold merit in the midst of all of the emotions I'm feeling? Like, yeah, is it, this going to hold water? It comes from my own really critical listening, especially around pain. That, you know, there's a lot of things that I may, you know, just kind of let somebody gloss over or say whatever. I could step into a science lecture and I'm not going to have the same passion for whether they're saying it right. But when it comes to how we talk about 
God, when it comes to how we talk about suffering, when it comes to how we talk about our neighbors, I am such a critical listener that I put my words through the filter of my own ridiculous standards. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think everything that is said in those contexts has to go through the the lens of how is this going to be received by the people that I've met with or uh, learned the stories from or whatever it might be. Like you've got to put yourself there or you're going to be just missing the mark on so many fronts in terms of doing the pastoral work. I think Frederick Bigner is a, is a real guide to me in this because he writes about faith, but I always feel like he would craft his books so that if you didn't believe exactly how he believed, you could you were still welcome. There was room for you in the way he wrote. Um, and so I will even in a funeral setting not assume that everybody in the room believes all the same things. So to offer like disqualifiers, like this is what we hope is true or to talk about it if the person who died is a person of faith, to like articulate it through what they hoped was true about who God was and what life meant. Um, and so I think that just, yeah, putting it through that filter of skepticism is also kind of helpful. You and I both kind of grew up in this, I don't know if it's the era or like a state of mind that funerals were about evangelism. Yeah. And I want us to just talk through that a little bit because um, do you have like a framework for for what you, the words you delivered? Do you have a certain thing you were trying to do with your words in those moments? Yeah. So, um, well, let's talk about the growing up part. I, it was absolute certitude seemed to be the, the approach is like, um, we know this and so therefore you need to give your life to this um, because we can know it without doubt. So if you're unsure about where you're going, then like make sure you make this decision. And it just never resonated with me to to think about it that way, like to, to capitalize on people's fear and vulnerability there. Um, so I love what you're saying and uh, you brought up Beekner, like his ability to just paint with mysterious new words, the same old concepts that maybe we've heard been there, done that before, but just invites you to like, think anew about it. I, I like that. I've experienced that around you where it's like, Oh, I've never would have thought to say it that way or think about it that way. But now like, I'm disarmed and want to like be brought into whatever you're you're talking about. And so I I am while there are some things in the faith world that I feel somewhat certain about, certitude is not the thing that I'm hammering uh in this vulnerable place of funerals. I want I want mystery. I want there to be uh just openness for that person who's like terrified that they stepped maybe foot into a church for the first time and they're gonna get that certitude hammer because of shame or whatever. Like I don't want that to be the impression. I want there to be just an invitation that there's space here for whatever you're dealing with. Yeah. And I, I think that impulse has your I was like thinking about like the Thursday night at camp when like the pressure is on church camp to like yeah. get kids saved on Thursday night. That's right. Got to notch and, those notch those notches, right? <laughs> but I I think it comes not necessarily from a terrible impulse, right? If you are the person up there 
trying to offer wisdom or guidance or assurance. You're doing it because there's fear in the room already. And I keep thinking about that. Um, Thomas Long, who's written a bunch of books about Christian funerals in particular, one of the things he says is that there are always two preachers in the room at a funeral, and one of them is death. Yeah, that's a great, great line. And um, it speaks pretty loudly that day, right? Yeah, so that is certain. Yeah. And so you do have a moment where people, that is one of the, like, they want to hear the story of the person. You know, that's certainly got to be a part of it. But I think they are wondering the bigger story about what does it mean that we're here and then we're not. And so I do think it makes some sense to talk through what do we think is happening here, even if it's just a nod to those questions. Yeah. Um, and the way I usually frame it is what we ho- how we hope this works. Yeah. Um, because we do have some inclination from scripture about that. But I always go back to uh, the story when Jesus is being questioned by the is it the Sadducees, I think. Sure. Who are pre- yeah, just confidently. Say it with confidence. Sadducees. It's being yeah. questioned by somebody. They come to him with this riddle about this woman who's married to a man. The man dies, she marries the brother because that's how it worked back then. Yep. <laughs> this very strange system of and and then I think in the riddle, actually that she's really bad luck. The second brother also dies. She ends up marrying like seven brothers yeah. in a row who all die. And so the riddle that the Sadducees pose to Jesus is whose wife is she in heaven? Um, which is just a f- very funny riddle. And Jesus' answer is, you don't even know what you're asking, that there's no marriage in heaven. And I always feel like I don't want to take too much of that, like literally, because I think that's exactly what he's trying to keep us from doing. Right. Is every framework you think you have for how this goes is just a hope. It's just a shadow of the reality. I always liken it to like, the thinking about life after life is if you tried to describe New York City to a baby, you just couldn't. There's no they couldn't make any sense of it. Right. Um, so I don't know. How do you walk that line? Like you do want to provide some hope to people. You do want to give some glimpse that our stories don't end at this worst part. Um, but how do we do that without creating like a false framework? Yeah, I, it's a a question at the forefront of any time that I am walking people through death and dying is how do we do this in a way that honors the person um, and has some integrity to like being true to who they were and who they're being remembered as, but capturing whatever qualities that can point us toward beyond and divine that can actually be redemptive and not manipulative. I think that's the the heart posture that I want to have is there are truths in every human that and goodness in every human that we can try to capture and like paint toward uh, a bigger picture if we can, but it's not always easy and especially like uh, we were talking off air a little bit about uh, funerals where we have no uh, connection with the person prior uh what is your process like there where you're like 
okay, I've got I've got to try to infuse hope as a pastor and and also honor uh, the loss and the grief in the room. Like, what's your approach when you don't know the person at all? It it becomes really important to just learn the person's story. And that actually becomes definitely for me, but I think for the family also, that becomes the holy work is not just showing up at the funeral at 11 o'clock, but all the preparation that goes into the choices to honor them, the choices to honor your own grief. Uh, some of the holiest moments I think I've ever experienced were me going into families' homes. The the meat and cheese trays are there. Yeah, <laughs> uh, as they should be. Yeah. As they should be. The casseroles are in the refrigerator, um, and you're just sitting around the kitchen. And I say, "Tell me about your person." And they just kind of pour out like their funny stories, their difficult stories. They they let you know who this person was to them. And I, I always tell people, like, tell me everything. Like, that doesn't mean I'm going to use everything, but it means everything will inform what, what angle I take. So it may end up that what you tell me reminds me of a story in scripture where this person was a lot like your person and here's how their story went. Um, or it just becomes like I get a feel for this is a person who loved life or this is a person who would want us to be laughing or this is a person who really wanted us to um, take care of each other. <laughs> so that's kind of been my experience with people I don't know or who I only know a little bit is that it's actually the holy work is listening to the family. Um, I don't know if you found this, but one thing I have found is sometimes in those moments, people only tell you the best parts yeah. of who they are. And I did a funeral for a, an older woman. I think she was in her 90s. And when I did that kitchen sit around with the family, they mostly told me the best stuff, the best parts. Mm -hmm. And then we get to the, the service and one of her granddaughters got up to talk and said, we all know she could be difficult. <laughs> and you could see that everybody in the room went, yes, yep. that is true. Like all the stuff I was repeating back to them that they told me that were her best stories, you know, they wanted to hear them and they did something probably to hear those stories retold. But what really brought the relief to the room was the admission that this person wasn't perfect. Yeah, I totally resonate with that. I think my goal is to to walk out of a time for sure, the holy listening, preparing, like getting as much intel that's accurate so that I can like portray this person um, fully or as fully as I can. But if I can walk out and people say, you know, they nailed it, like he nailed it in terms of like really capturing who that person was, both the good, the bad, uh, the sweet, the ugly, then it does something to just acknowledge people's experience of that person and let them feel all the feelings, both the, both the good and maybe the less than good and, and acknowledge their humanness in it. And so I, I try to have like an open approach, a, a blank slate with every preparation for a funeral where I'm like, I'm not going to go with this rote passage that is yeah. always my go-to. I just want, I want to like, allow that listening to inform how I prepare. 
there's one of the most formative things for me, a uh, pastor. And he said, yeah, my first pastoral visit uh, was a couple. Uh, she lost her husband uh, pretty suddenly. And I had just like started at the church. And so I went and I read all of the scripture that I was trained to read and said all the pastoral things I was supposed to say and um, spent a little bit of time there. And as I was leaving, her best friend got there from out of town, like ran up to her, hugged her uh, and just held her and said, damn. And uh, afterwards, like a, a long time later, uh, she apparently talked to the pastor and said, hey, I appreciate you coming um, and and saying what you said. That was kind. Uh, but just so you know, the most pastoral thing that happened that day was my best friend cussing and just holding me. Yeah. And I, that has stuck with me. Um, sometimes it's not what we say, <laughs> but what we don't say and uh, or maybe the cuss words we do say uh, sometimes have some some balm to them in terms of comfort. And yeah, there's something about bringing your bringing your full self to the moment that I think you don't just as people, we find that to be really difficult. But then I think for people who are in a position of, of service or pastoring, you think you're supposed to bring some professional <laughs> holiness. Yeah. And, and sometimes, I don't know. I, I, I have seen times where people did need you to be a figurehead. I remember being at a funeral uh, for a young man who died and the grandma hugged me and just in my ear whispered, I'm so mad at God. Mm. And I, I don't know if she said that to everybody that day or if because I was serving as the pastor, she needed to say it to me. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes it's like there's a holiness to playing that role for people. And yeah. sometimes it's also the best friend. I think that maybe that just challenges all of us to, to be with people in pain, right? Not just in grief, but in any kind of pain. Um, I want to also just talk a little bit about this because I, I know one of the things that's kind of happening in our world is there is this loss of what we do. <laughs> there is this loss of the role of pastor being necessary. Um, I've had a, a lot of friends who I've sat down with them and said, here's how you do a wedding um, or here's how you do a funeral because there's more people who kind of want their friends to step in and play that role. Um, I think it's worth saying there's beautiful and and difficult things about that. Uh, have you seen that happening? And what's your response to that when you see it happening around you? I have and have similarly helped uh, where I've been asked to. Um, I do just want that person who's in that space to understand the, the weight of what they're signing up for because it's not it's not a roast <laughs> you're not just uh like saying some funny things and then calling it a day like you're you are trying to take the people somewhere together and like to understand the weight of that responsibility and the privilege of that is really important and so as long as that's in play uh i think friends can do a a, a better job sometimes than maybe the the pastor who's disconnected can do you th do you think that maybe the the reason that's happening is because pastors have held the space poorly or do you think it like what's going on there yeah that's got to be at least a part of it is we probably all have stories of you know going to a funeral and feeling like that didn't meet <laughs> the family's needs yeah. um 
I remember at my grandma, one of my grandma's services, she was Catholic. We were at her, at her parish with the guy who should have known her well, but he ended up talking about his own mom for a lot of the service. And, and it was just felt strange. And I think there is this sense that if, especially when you think about bigger churches where the pastor might not be in the mix with people in their daily life. And so that they can feel like a distant person. Um, That's why I say there might be some goodness to us seeing everyone has capable of representing holiness or, but yeah, part of me does still think that is a skill to draw out the biggest possible picture of what's meaningful in those moments. Um, but yeah, I do think some of it probably comes from it, maybe seeing somebody do it badly, but also that loss of trust. That That's one of the big things that we are, we've seen is the loss of trust yeah, in think, those roles. I think you're right. I, I agree. Well, even though we're, I think, recognizing that the roles we play might be shifting, changing, I do just want to, uh, thank you for joining me for this and for going along with my pretense that withness is an actual word. I appreciate you legitimizing that. It's a good word. And it, it brings strength to, to this entire season. So thanks for being with me. Hi, everyone. It's Keaton here. Thank you again to Ben for coming back on our show to share a little bit about being a guiding presence for people who are grieving. I really would love to encourage those of you who have tuned in and listened to us this season um, to share our stories. We've had a lot of really incredible people come on the show and be vulnerable in expressing what their unique experiences with grief have been like. And we just really feel like it could be a cool tool for people who have gone through similar experiences to have in order to feel a little bit less alone. You can um, rank us. That helps it get out to more people, leave reviews. It just really is a cool way for us to experience withness on a larger scale. Um, And that small act can really help it potentially get into some hands that could really use the stories that we've been sharing. In addition, we are excited to have some Withness stickers. We're hoping that having these stickers out and about in the world will help encourage us to um, have Withness at the forefront of our minds and just remember to be a little bit more present with each other. So please, if you're interested in having one of our stickers, you can reach out to us. We have our own Gmail now. So it's withnesspod at gmail.com. So that's withnesspod at gmail. So if you want a sticker, just reach out to us and we'll send it straight to you. We're excited to share Withness with each other. And we think that this could be a fun way for us to all feel a little bit more connected in our podcast world. Thanks for tuning in and keep your eyes peeled for season two of Witness.